don't believe, I always think that all this bullshit about to provoke you a little bit more, this is superstitious logic. It's pure ideology. You know this ecological bullshit like... Uh... Hello, welcome to the end of the world. This is Anthropocene's episode 30. And today we're starting our October month of watching uh, climate change related documentaries of which there are a million and today we're starting with kind of the, the granddaddy of them all, uh, 2006's An Inconvenient Truth, and also 2017's An Inconvenient Sequel. I keep wanting to say squeakquel. <laughs> An Inconvenient Sequel, uh, colon, Truth to Power, both uh, produced, I guess, not directed, but starring, and I guess produced by Albert Gore Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, Tennessee native. Tennessee native, yeah. yeah. We're, we're probably 20 minutes from his house right now. We're, really, we're in Hendersonville. Carthage is just, just up the way. Yeah, and uh, at MTSU they have the Albert Gore Senior Center for whatever it's for. I never used it, so it must not be a humanities-related thing. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, but it's on campus, right next to Forest Hall. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right next to uh, the Nathan ROTC building, Bedford Forest, named after Hall. the founder of the Klan. Pretty cool. Um, so the the sounds different because we're actually in person. We're, we're both in Tennessee for this one for personal reasons. Corey's um, wedding. Shout Corey's out to wedding. Corey yeah, Corey. Recently married Corey Cummings and now Hillary Cummings. <laughs> and here's his address and his social security yeah, number. Yeah, let me give you his phone number. So, yeah, they um they got married and have many happy years ahead of them. So we're we're in person recording this episode uh, for the first time in a little bit. I'm, I'm working on the, the, the beginning of my second day hangover from that wedding. <laughs> If that tells you anything about that wedding. It was a real uh, knockdown, drag out <laughs> affair. There was some, uh, there was some serious dance moves being uh, displayed. Yes, Zach, if you're out there, best moves <laughs> I've seen in a while. PCZ cutting a rug. Um, so we're talking about an inconvenient truth and an inconvenient sequel uh, because, as I as I said last time, as far as documentaries about climate change go these are kind of the the ones that kicked everything off and so this comes out uh, the first one i mean comes out in 2006 and immediately becomes this kind of or at least was presented as if it became this kind of sensation where it's like oh you have to see this movie al gore is explaining why the world's on fire that sort of stuff um, and that led to people coming to his defense people um, coming to speak against him and talk about him being a fraud and that kind of stuff. Um, so we're going to try to to wade through some of that uh, bullshit and try to, to get to it, the core of like, why do these movies exist? What are they saying? Are they effective? All that kind of stuff. I kept thinking about Michael Moore watching these movies and, and thinking about how I tend to agree with the substance of what Michael Moore's movies say the same way I agree with a lot of the substance of what these inconvenient movies say. <laughs> these inconvenient uh, movies. But uh, uh, the personality of, you know, of the star, the, you know, it's so weird to me that Michael Moore makes himself the star of his movies. And it's weird for Al Gore, who is not, I mean, he's well known because he was the vice president. He, you know, ran for president. Uh, but he's not known as like a particularly dynamic personality. And so there's a way for him to sort of use his 
well-knownness to get this message out. But to me, it's very strange that he is the mouthpiece for it. Uh, He's not a particularly compelling speaker. All of the attempts at humor feel very forced, you know? Uh, And so you wonder like, who's the audience? I'm I'm always the guy like, you know, making this about audience because to me, it seems like, you know, the issue with, with a, with an issue like this, um, of, of making people aware of, of something important. You say, who, who is the audience for an inconvenient truth? People who already are on board or are predisposed to care about something like this. All the attempts at reaching out are half-assed at best. You know, these like the weird sort of animation, you know, kind of things he does. It's like, who, who is this supposed to appeal to? I don't really know. Yeah. And, you know, like you're saying, Al Gore is not known for being a very dynamic person. He has yeah. this kind of like slow Tennessee drawl that he got made fun of a lot. You know, back around 2000 for the election, I remember the, uh, you know, I was, I was pretty young, but the, I remember the SNL parodies uh, with, uh, I guess it would have been Will Ferrell as George Bush and then Daryl Hammond, Darryl Hammond yeah. as Al Gore. And the big thing was that Al Gore was boring and spoke really slow and was just kind of like not very compelling, which is, you know, mostly true, uh, I would say. And, um, you know, doesn't make about, him, you're talking about George W. Bush or George H. W. Bush, George W. Bush. Okay. Okay. Like yeah. 2000. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, so yeah, he's not, he's not super compelling. And so when you think about how does he effectively get this message across to an audience, for some reason, the conclusion he came to was a long, a keynote presentation with a, an accompanying lecture. I keep giving the, you know, I've uh, started doing my slideshow again. He <laughs> keeps talking about the slideshow as if this is some sort of antidote. Lord, Lord help me. I'm back on my bullshit. <laughs> no, I, one, one thing I, uh, I do want to talk about is the sort of megalomania implicit in this project. There's, there's a few things that make you see that in these movies, but there's one, uh, sentence in particular in the sequel at the beginning where he says something like, you know, in the last, you know, 10 years since the first movie came out, a lot of these uh, issues that I talked about have gotten worse. And I'd be lying if I said I didn't feel like, uh, you know, the, this was my uh, a result of my personal failing. It's like, you think you're responsible for the condition of the earth? It's like, just because you talk about it, doesn't mean people are like looking to you to like be some sort of responsible you, you know what i'm saying like just yeah. because this is your sort of issue and this is what you care about to think that you are responsible is uh extreme narcissism yeah and that and that's kind of a through line through both of these movies where he uh, al gore seems to really or at least be presenting that he thinks he has some sort of global impact on how these people think about climate change or how people react to it. Um, you know, in the second one, the whole thing is, is driving toward the, this Paris agreement. And he presents it as if this is going to be like the silver bullet that fixes everything. And he's in the meetings, like in some ways sort of talking down to these other representatives from these countries. Um, and it, I think that kind of attitude is where, like the South Park parodies come from right. um, the fact that he was, 
you know, awarded a Nobel Peace Prize. It's kind of a, you know, the Nobel Peace Prize is not really that prestigious of an award. Um, it's been given to, you know, American presidents that have perpetuated wars and, uh, you know, dictators and, and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's really not the the sort of shiny, you know, award that people think it is. But South Park and other people just more generally really hammered Al Gore for this kind of self-righteous attitude that he had. And that's, and that's the larger point I'm making about like comparing him to Michael Morris. Like he's not wrong about all this stuff, but he's undercutting the seriousness of the message by making himself part of the message. It's like, man, you could have just produced something, um, helped produce something, use your connections to make something, um, to get the, this message across without doing this as some sort of self-promotion. And that's one thought I couldn't sort of shake when he's talking about, I think it's in the sequel where he keeps talking about these like climate leadership training seminars he's giving. And it's like, I just have a weird suspicion that it costs a bunch of money to go to one of these things. Yeah, you know to. what I'm saying? Yeah. It's like something like people that work for nonprofits get sent to these to learn mm-hmm. how to, deal with climate change and they what they get is al gore talking about the uh the blue marble picture for half an hour or whatever yeah oh yeah that's another thing um given our our discussion of the blue marble in ad astra it's like it's sort of weird how you know i think a uh a sort of psychoanalytical type person would 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 see Al Gore's love of the blue marble and his insistence that the picture be in his office uh, and the megalomania aspects that I think they would probably see those as very connected. You know what I'm saying? Where it's like he wants to have the whole world in his hands. And so he has this very distant perspective on, you know, the blue marble because it allows him to feel like he is able to impact it on the you know as a whole yeah uh, which is fucking crazy and and is really kind of the point in ad astra is like this is thinking about earth as this other thing is this you know it's, it distances you from the react from the sort of emotional relational reality um so yeah there's a lot going on i think with that with that blue marble uh, love of Al Gore's. Yeah. And uh, have you ever seen the, the old Disney movie Rocket Man with Harlan? With Harlan Williams? Harlan Williams. I've seen yeah. that movie probably 25 times. Really? I well, love well, it. you remember the scene where yes. they ask him like what he thinks about the, seeing the earth from space and he's like, it's like a like a blue marble that I'm holding in my hands, like a, and then he sings. Does he say? Does he say a blueberry or a blue? Oh, marble? blueberry! Yeah, I yeah. think it's blueberry. And then they sing. I got the whole wide world. Yeah, and right all the different hands. languages. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty. That's sort of like, I don't know. That it just this movie made me think of that because it's it's similarly sort of goofy when Al Gore is talking about these pictures, and in an inconvenient sequel, there's a whole section where he's talking about. Um, putting together the Discover satellite or whatever mm-hmm. to to be this project that will take new pictures of the Earth from space. 
um, and have all these like climate instruments and then Bush gets elected and they immediately shut it down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and like when they, like when this they, personal vendetta sort of thing. Yeah. And then he, he explains how, when the, uh, these companies were complaining from about these solar storms, which I, this is news to me that, that these companies are worried about these solar storms. Um, the Bush administration's like, okay, we'll put that satellite up, but we'll take all the climate instruments off and the camera and all this. Yeah. That to me, if that's true, that's super fucked up, but it seemed like it was told in a kind of reductive way. Yeah. I, I suspect there's quite a bit more to it than that. Yeah. But I, you know, not to defend George Bush in any way, yeah, shape or form. It's perfectly on brand for the, the Bush yeah. Cheney administration that they would just be like, no, fuck that. We're going to cut the budget. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, I'll go. It's kind of weird how, especially in an inconvenient sequel, Al Gore is still kind of harping on his run for president. Like he has the letter from his daughter that she wrote in like, he says like 1987 about yeah. like the pros and cons of her dad running for president. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, he tells this long story about the satellite that if he had been elected would have been this like great thing. And you see, you can see what they're trying to do in both of these movies that they're trying to humanize him mm-hmm. and they're trying to make it seem like this is not some sort of political power trip, that this is a, a human being who uh, wants to protect his home and his children and that sort of thing. And that, and that may very well be the case, but the rhetorical strategies are so transparent that, and uh, coupled with all the other sort of things we talked about, like the kind of narcissism that seems at the heart of this project, uh, it's hard to take those elements seriously. Uh, it also seems like they're kind of reaching for material to use as that, rhetorical strategies oh yeah he remember it's like they know that this is what people associate al gore with is the the 2000 controversial election uh, and so somehow that gets incorporated into this movie about climate change and that's what i'm saying yeah. like why is this about al gore yeah and there's a the classic sort of um you know center left dream scenario or like alternate reality scenario where Gore wins and then the world is completely different. And like, don't get me wrong. I really believe that if he had won that election, things would be vastly different. Um, Would we have not gone to war with Iraq or in Iraq? I should say not with, I think that's the wrong, the wrong proposition there Uh, or preposition. I mean, Um, it was the right proposition apparently. Um, But you know, I think we would have been less zealous and maybe a little bit less bloodthirsty in our policy. And maybe we would have had more of an eye toward climate and environmental concerns. Um, the, the world would be, would not be perfect. Like he'd still be a neoliberal shill for the most part, but yeah. And, and then the question is if, if Al Gore happened, does Obama happen? Yeah. You know, I don't know. Yeah. Because we, there's no, uh, the, the sort of, American culture of massive backlashes doesn't need to really happen. But then, but then here, let's get real hypothetical. So Al Gore happens, Obama doesn't happen. Say McCain happens, oh, yeah. then Trump doesn't happen. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's the butterfly effect. It, which is it's sort of interesting because I think I don't know. I don't know how you know, uh, beneficial it is to sort of think about it and this, think about these alternative scenarios. Not at all. But I do, I do think that if, if Obama had not been elected, Trump would not 
have even considered it. Like, I don't think that series of events ever unfolds. Yeah. We probably get just like a, like a McCain or like a, you know, John Kerry. Yeah. Like the Democrat Jeb. Yeah. (laughs) You know, something middle of the road, milk toast war criminals, you know, or like, you know, uh, George W. Bush runs again against (laughs) Gore, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he lost. <laughs> so, Maybe. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, he conceded. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty, pretty cool how that happened. Um, but See, that, it's weird. We're like, this is a climate, climate, uh, change aimed podcast. And here we are talking about Al fucking Gore's, uh, political career. Yeah. Because and, it's so present yeah. in, in the, in both of these documentaries, which again is, is even weirder for, the sequel because that's in 2017 so that's 17 years after the fact yeah. and he's still bringing it up and, and again it's like i said the the substance of a lot of this movie i agree with he's talking about how all the things he talked about in 2006 have gotten worse yeah. he at least admits that he says um any if you care about the environment there will be severe sort of vacillations between hope and despair check you know um and so so a lot and the the final speech he gives is kind of moving in in a real way uh the final scene of the movie where he's comparing climate uh the issue of climate change to past struggles for human rights which i completely agree is a thing and i think i think more people should uh, start to frame the issue of climate change as a moral issue and a human rights issue because more and more it is be- I don't even want to say it's becoming that it is that because it's a uh, you know it's displacing peoples yeah it's a, it's a human rights issue and and I think that speaks more directly to people's most people's concerns they can understand my house is underwater versus uh polar bears are dying uh, mm-hmm. or you know my where i live will be uninhabitable there there is a story on npr that I heard you know just driving the other day and it's a lady who lives in somewhere in the florida keys and the whole story was about how uh hurricane irma i want to say just came through and just basically just didn't destroy her house but made it almost unlivable but because she's so invested in it in a financial sense she can't afford to to leave so she's stuck in this house that is so damaged that they won't like the insurance company or whoever it is won't give her the money to rebuild cuz they say it's like so far gone yeah and the the interviewer is like asking her all these serious questions of like well like do you think this is to do with climate change and and all this and eventually arrives at the point where the interviewer asks do you think people should be allowed to build new homes in these, these areas. And she was just like, no, I don't think anyone should be doing that. I think everybody needs to wake up and realize that like, this will just happen again. She's like, I could rebuild this house. Like even if everything went according to plan and I got the money and I rebuilt, but there's just going to be another hurricane in a few months. And who's to say that one won't be worse. Right. Um, but then this other, this other aspect of how it, the, you know, climate change and these superstorms and all this stuff is just going to exacerbate pre-existing conditions in a lot of ways um i don't know you don't look at our twitter 
I don't, I don't think, but I've tried to be more active on it recently. <laughs> and, uh, I shared, like retweeted the story by Sam Adler bell for the, the new Republic. Uh, and the name of it is why white supremacists are hooked on green living. And it, it goes into this eco-fascism idea of, uh, how easily you can make that connection. Or I, I should say like, you should make the, how easily you can make that connection for the kind of feeble minded where you say, well, the environment is at risk. Um, what's causing it? Well, something that's causing it is all these refugees coming in or like all these people that don't respect the environment. So we have to get back to this older relationship to, to the environment yeah. and what ne- comes along mind, with that. Never mind the first world empires causing the conditions yeah, exactly. that, that displace people. Yeah. And that tying it back to this whole idea that one of the Nazis rallying cries was blood and soil. Right. So uh, in Trump, I don't know, like this was not really covered in the news. But it's terrifying to me uh, in his address to the U.N. General Assembly. Trump was talking about uh, how you should love your nation. Right. And if you want to, uh, you know, you should definitely love your nation. I can't remember. I'm going to have to look up exactly how he worded it because it was just basically saying above all things, you should love your your nation. Right. You shouldn't worry about the world at large. You when should you keep your eyes at home. Your nay, my, I'm conditioned to think burr. Neighbor. Yeah, but that's definitely not <laughs> yeah. not uh, the case uh, here. Trump is, uh, yeah, that, that makes sense. But as I was hearing it, I was like, this is like, it's like a newsreel from the 30s. And you hear mm-hmm. like some fascist somewhere talking about it. That reminds me how in, at the beginning of An Inconvenient Sequel, they're playing a clip of all these people talking shit about Al Gore. Mm-hmm. Just audio. And you hear some, it's probably some talk radio thing. This guy says, uh, you didn't watch a... Uh, Goebbels film to understand the the German people, and you don't watch an Al Gore film to understand climate change. It's like that is not a fair comparison. <laughs> you know, this guy's talking about uh, sea level rise, not uh, the inferiority of an entire race. Yeah. So I, I found I found his his remarks, and I did a quick search of the word nation. It appears forty nine times in this address. So here's the part I was talking about. Um, just this quick passage it says the free world must embrace its national foundations. It must not attempt to erase them or replace them, which is literally coming out of the white supremacist handbook of they're trying to replace us with brown people and all that sort of stuff. Looking around and all, all over this large, magnificent planet, the truth is plain to see. If you want freedom, take pride in your country. If you want democracy, hold on to your sovereignty. And if you want peace, love your nation. Wise leaders always put the good of their own people and their own country first. The future does not belong to globalists. The future belongs to patriots. The future belongs to sovereign and independent nations who protect their citizens, respect their neighbors, so don't love, he says respect, but even that, you know, highly dubious, and honor the differences that make each country special and unique. So it's this, like, well, beautiful in how evil it is kind of turn of this phrase of honor the differences that make each country special and unique. So honor your individual heritage uh, and honor your neighbors. And what, I guess what, what he means by that is like, we have this, this view of, you know, for instance, Mexicans, the stereotypical view will honor their culture, right? Honor the fact that they have a million kids and can't support the, like the, all this right. sort of stuff. Right. Um, and just, I, I don't know. I heard, I heard him them playing a clip on that on the, on NPR or somewhere. And I was just like, holy shit. Yeah. Trump is, I was, I, I've been thinking about climate change as like a, a, uh, 
a sort of hangover, like a, a metaphor of a hangover to where the 20th century is just like a Bacchanalian just fucking party, right? Yeah. On a large scale. And then we're starting to feel the negative consequences. Uh, I, think, I think Steinbeck says a hangover is a uh, consequence, not a punishment. You know, there's like <laughs> yeah. responsibility, accountability. Um, but uh, in that metaphor, you see these sort of nationalistic leaders rising up. It's sort of like they, Trump especially, are a sort of, within that metaphor, kind of hair of the dog, right? So we're starting to experience these negative consequences as a sort of hangover. And then we try to double down on the shit that got us into the mess in the first place uh, by reverting literally in, in the sort of MAGA sense of it, reverting back to this uh, 20th century mindset. Um, anyway, that's my, that's my metaphor. Trump hair, of the dog, a bitch. Yeah. <clears throat> and well, I guess we should get back to the movies. Cause, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it, I mean, that just shows how, how sort of entwined they are with all this other stuff that's going on. Which is, on the one hand, is good because climate change and, and all these other environmental concerns are entangled with politics and religion and society and all this other all these other major concepts. Um, but like you're saying, it also kind of detracts from the fact that this is supposed to be, uh, or both of these are supposed to be these movies that wake people up, quote unquote, or sort of get them involved. Especially the second one is all about training people to do whatever it is that he's training them to do. He's, to, tra he's training them to give the slideshow. If you, if you listen carefully to what he's doing, he's like, he's saying, and you, you'll come into your own natural flow, you know, about how to describe these pictures. Like he's giving them the slideshow. Yeah. Which is, I don't know. It's like, uh, it, it really is like giving a man a fish versus teaching a man to fish <laughs> sort of stuff. Where just give them the information and they'll they'll come around, but that you've been doing that since two thousand six or before, and it really hasn't brought anyone around yet. And and that's something we've we've you know discussed a few times that and and a little bit in terms of unite behind the science and that whole uh, that idea. It's just like if. If, you, if you're trying, and this goes back to the point about audience, if you're trying to get people to unite behind science and see this as an apolitical issue, uh, you know, outside of politics, then why would you, as Al Gore, put yourself in this movie who is a political figure and a, yeah. and a political figure very much associated with one political party? To think that you exist in the public consciousness as a um, uh, political, a, de a Democrat, that you can make a film that is going to in any way be viewed as apolitical is just crazy. Yeah. And that's, it kind of condemned it from the start where if you are on that, you know, far right side of the, this metaphorical aisle that everybody talks about, uh, in this this burning movie theater, right? Sort of like the end of Inglorious Bastards. Um, when you see Al Gore up there saying anything, let alone talking about one of the most uh, unfortunately controversial things in our current world, uh, 
you're just automatically going to have that knee jerk reaction of, you know, he's, he's trying to pull one over on us. He's trying to, but nobody ever talks about what climate change proponents or, you know, people that, that believe in climate change and are trying to get the word out and all that sort of stuff. No one ever talks about what they're earning from this, what they're gaining, or at least I, I, most people don't. They just say, well, it's all a big scam. Okay, well, what's the payoff? Mm-hmm. What do you get? And they're like, the schools are lying to you. It's like, well, w- to what end? Yeah. Why are they doing it? Like, yeah, like it's like Hillary Clinton gives every teacher $50 every time they say something about climate change. You know? Yeah, and it's, it's like, well, what, what's the big? And, and, and even if there is some sort of like massive payoff, how is it affecting you? You know, Joe Blow, registered Republican who's sitting in front of his computer in his basement, like rallying against it. Okay, well, what effect is it having on you personally? Yeah, there's if it's got been, one, there's been no regulatory action at all for it, climate change. It's like, just, you know, it's just so simple for some of these things. Of all it takes is for you to look around at your own life and be like, "What did this do to me personally?" Yeah. And that doesn't work for everything. And you know, there are definitely limits to it. But I had a student once who was a—I've probably told this story before—but like an older lady who had had kids and was coming back to school when I was teaching at this community college. And she at the beginning of class one day, she was like, Hey, did you hear that? This is when Obama was still president. She says, Hey, uh, did you hear that uh, Obama uh, declared martial law? And I was just like, no, where did you hear that? She's like, ah, something, you know, internet somewhere. And I was like, so you think Obama declared martial law? She was like, well, no, that's what it said. And I was like, don't you think you would have heard that? Don't you think something would have changed if martial law had been declared? Don't you think things would be a little bit different? She you're, was like, well, I guess here. so. <laughs> and I was like, oh, this is just. So that was kind of my precursor for everything that happened in 2016 with, uh, you know, Facebook and all that. Yeah. Well, and it's. Uh, we were talking about this a little bit before we recorded. uh the subtitle of an inconvenient sequel, yeah, Truth to Power, that sort of goes along with what we're saying about Al Gore's credibility. It's like he's trying to uh, depict himself as existing somehow outside of political structures and like the underdog. It's like you are the power. Don't you see that? You're vice and, president and, for eight years. Right. And don't you see how you making a documentary about yourself sort of hopping planes all across the world communicates the exact opposite of you being some sort of underdog, you know, you on your fucking computer and cell phone in the back of a limousine in Beijing and then, and then Miami and then here and then there. It's like, what are you talking about? Truth to power. I don't know. I just love that scene where he's talking to the, the Indian delegate representative or whatever. And uh, this is in an inconvenient sequel, and they're trying to, to come to an agreement on the Paris uh, Agreement. Agreement, agreement, agreement. And the uh, the Indian representative is just telling him all the stuff that, that these developing nations say all the time, which is, you were given centuries to exist, you know, just polluting at will and burning all these fossil fuels and all that sort of stuff. And we're asking for you to let us come get up to speed, but now you're saying we're not allowed to do that. Right. And it sort of takes on this neo-colonialist feeling to it of like, okay, now you're telling us we can't even develop once we we've gotten the power and the sort of infrastructure and all this stuff to do it. Now you're saying, oh, sorry, we, we have to cut you off. Yeah. The guy says, uh, the Indian delegate says, uh, you know what? Give us 150 years of, uh, yeah. of industrialized, uh, economics and then 
we'll we'll get on board with this so you know yeah. he says it sort of sarcastically like hey you guys just uh used your industrialized economy uh to get an infrastructure in place that's allowing you to even think about these you know progressive changes yeah. uh so i mean his point is well taken but then al gore's point back to him is not bad he no, says he says all i'm saying is i look outside and i can't see the sun yeah he's like when did the sun come up today where's yeah. the sky um because they're meeting in is, is that in beijing where they're meeting I, I can't remember where that is it might if it some like it was large might have been an metropolitan India. area yeah, well, so some area where the, the the air quality has suffered because of yeah. this kind of industrialization, this rapid industrialization. Um, so yeah, you know, and it's not a bad point, but it kind of, and I don't have an answer for this. It kind of leaves you at a stalemate of like, what is the solution? Like, what you you really, depending on your worldview, you can't tell these nations like you can't do these things right. because you're literally, it's hypocritical. It's you know, insulting in a lot of ways. Um, but you can't just sit back and be like, okay, you get, you know, start the clock on your century, go ahead and do whatever you want. Right. Um, I mean, you can, and that's kind of what's happening, but <laughs> shouldn't be. Yeah. I don't, I don't really know what to do with that. Cause like I said, I'm, I agree with so much of what Al Gore says, but the point that the delegate, the Indian uh, delegate makes is, is well taken. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's almost like, it's just, it just, sometimes it feels like things are so far gone, so far advanced that you can't even like, it's like the conditions that would have to be here to, for, for either one to be able to do the right thing are just gone. You know, there's yeah. like, what is there? There doesn't appear to be any right answer. Yeah. Like what is the right thing that we could do? Right. There are Start a lot over. of like, there. yeah, there are a lot of better things. Right. Right. That was a, a good YouTube comment. I saw on a clip from one of these movies that a guy was saying, uh, he basically said like, start over, cut the population to 500 million, and <laughs> which is like, again, that, that kind of falls under eco-fascist terms for me of like population. We need to just get rid of people. It's like, well, the, the percentage of people that cause this is not very high when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning like, you know, those in the halls of power and the running the corporations, like we're all implicated, of course, because we have to be It's sort of the web of how the world works. Mm-hmm. You know, we've talked before that if you live, you know, in a, in a city in the South, you have to have a car or you're just taken out of any sort of productivity that you could possibly have. Yeah. And, and just the sort of nature of, of a techno consumerist society the older options do not remain. <laughs> Nothing gold can stay. Mm-hmm. You know, when when uh, cell phones become prevalent, uh, pay f- or not pay phones, but uh, what do you call those? The phone booths yeah. just disappear. It's n- it's not like you can choose to remain behind. Uh, mm-hmm. So there's there's no way to it. I guess like the concept of lock-in, I think uh, that uh, writer Jaron Lanier, we may have mentioned here before, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, talks about lock-in, how like culture is arbitrary and technology is arbitrary. There are many forms it can take, but in especially in the, the type of economy and culture we have, once it's there, it's very difficult to change. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's made me think of like church lock-ins. 
Um, but yeah, like in another term that that a lot of people talk about um, that's related, but the opposite in a lot of ways is degrowth, and this fact that you know the problem is we're always trying to advance to the next stage or get to the next level of expansion or whatever. When really the right answer would be to to scale back and mm-hmm. degrow, um, and that's what you know. I just read this book that I have to. Google the name of the author because my brain doesn't work as well as it used to. Um, but the book is called this land, how cowboys capitalism and corruption are ruining the American West by Christopher Ketchum. It's a really great book. Um, I've talked about a lot. I've had a tweet about it. Um, and he, at the, toward the end of that book, he talks about, he's talking specifically about like land use in the West and national parks in the West and this kind of stuff. Um, Bureau of Land Management stuff and the the Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, which is now Black Lives Matter exists. So it kind of people don't even think about that acronym in that kind of way. Mm. But he, he sort of is presenting them as, in a lot of ways, the problem in how they're handling it. And they kowtow to these ranchers and stuff. And at the end, he's talking about like what he would do if he was sort of given the power to do whatever he wanted. And he talks about this sort of uh, extreme degrowth is you, you take the national parks, he said the first step is you take out the roads, you derode them. And that does, you know, it has these multiple effects of, um, there will no longer be as many visitors, but the people that really want to go will go. There will be no more vehicle travel into the park. Um, it just sort of changes everything. But because of that, because you take out roads and you, in a lot of ways, take out humans or at least humans as we live today, that the the ecosystem would flourish again and could sort of go back to not exactly how it was, but at least like improve in a lot of different ways. Um, but degrowth is scary. And to a lot of people, it sounds like we're losing kind of as a species. Mm-hmm. If we're not constantly expanding, then something's wrong. Right. Um, and and especially go exp- backwards. And that just exposes the sort of roots of the ideology, mm-hmm. like to experience uh, degrowth, as losing means that you experience growth as winning. So, so your ideology is one of expansion, which is predictable in America, mm-hmm. you know, given our, given our history. But it's interesting to me that the, that degrowth begins with the removal of roads. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it makes me think of uh, the social critic, uh, James Howard Kunstler's book, the geography of nowhere, which I'm sure we've mentioned on here before. And, how he just sort of diagnoses like the the most problems of like urban and suburban space stem from the automobile and like America changed aesthetically and culturally because of the automobile. And he's like, basically makes the argument that America is so fucking ugly because architecture and city planning and everything is and apparently has to be deferential to cars mm-hmm. and so it's a big fucking parking lot yeah and and i don't know about like maybe i'm you know in the minority here but i really appreciate it when i'm in an area or in a city or you know a part of a city that is really taking uh the pedestrian in into account and sort of making it accessible for pedestrians mm-hmm. um it feels way more comfortable you don't have to worry about parking if you're going to go anywhere right um 
just from like a practical standpoint and also it's just better for the planet in general if you can create these spaces where bicycling and being a pedestrian mass transit these things are are there and are functioning right because we see like now in new york a lot of the infrastructure there is kind of in dire need of repair um and you know there are so many countless examples of this working in other countries that's just it never ceases to be frustrating that people in america are just like well, we can't do that here we're too big fucking china has like right. an extensive train system well and also what you're talking about there is growth you know what i'm saying just because it's uh a, in a different direction mm-hmm. you know those uh, you know people talk about the incompatibility of like environmentalism and and solid a solid economy it's like no this is where the jobs are it's almost in a weird way it's almost you could if you're sticking within a capitalist mindset you could view it as fortunate in a way of like oh because we've built this disgusting world that has to be repaired we have to pay people to make it better and to replace it it's yeah. it's like a built-in 100 year economy like it's going to take 100 years to get everything uh consistent with what the science suggests needs to happen and so people who who are saying that uh, you know it's not realistic and it's not economically viable what the fuck are you have like what are you smoking i don't know uh it's uh it's extreme like the conversion of american cities to uh walkable cities or at least to cities with public transportation um and you know this is part of the green new deal obviously infrastructures um it's in i mean you think about the new deal like the original version and how things like the works progress administration and all this put millions of americans to work right like created this incredible boom in, in the number of jobs well why can't people see that as a positive now right if you want a job that's not driving fucking uber or uh, postmates or whatever this is a job that would have you know a lasting impact and also would last for a while because that work's going to take so long and be so uh, labor intensive and in that book ketchum it makes this this other great point and again he's talking about national parks so it's a different kind of example where um part of the problem with funding of national parks is they need this budget to maintain roads and maintain this kind of infrastructure within the park and he was saying if you take these roads out and i'm going to misquote the number he says it costs like 50 million dollars to remove the roads it's like it's a one-time cost you do it and then there's no more maintenance cost (laughs) and then you you don't have to factor that into anything um so i don't know and there's also that point sort of obvious point that in the specific example of national parks by making a sacred space or a, a space to be revered, you are desacralizing everything surrounding it. And as long as we have these sort of uh, revered spaces, all the spaces surrounding it will be uh, fair game for dis- destruction. And so I think if if you can sort of I mean, this is pie in the sky. Obviously, this is never going to happen. But what needs to happen is people need to start looking at their shitty neighborhoods and their shitty cities 
and trying to imagine them as uh, as revereable, uh, as deserving of reverence and respect as, say, Yellowstone National Park and making the places where they live worth living in rather than having this sort of mecca to drive to across the country to sort of revitalize yourself you know why why can't that be your fucking backyard um you know it, it's weird how we think of of space in you know we kind of uh, compartmentalize it yeah. in, in a weird way to where oh this is sacred space this is this is commercial space it's like this has all been here forever i was i was talking to one of my classes about how we how we think about nature and how we define nature and i just start off with this question of how many of you like nature and you know they put up some hands and i'd be like, okay why do you like nature right and you know this whole idea of nature is defined in a number of ways and it's this kind of it's a very human construct of how we think about the environment and uh one of the first things one of the students said was i like it because it's an escape and i was like okay well what are you escaping from why do you feel the need to escape you know, what do you do in these spaces that are an escape? Like, how do you feel when you have to come back to the, the town you live in or the city you live in? And that that's how uh, an inconvenient truth begins is with Al Gore at his uh, shots of his farm in Carthage uh, and him narrating, talking about that feeling you get when you sort of step outside the hustle and bustle of city life and and you're alone in nature and you have this sort of rejuvenation. You say, oh yeah, I, for, I forgot about this. It's like, you shouldn't have to forget about this. It should not be a revitalization. I mean, maybe that sounds a little too optimistic, but I just don't think you should have to view nature as a, a replenishment. It should just, maybe your whole life should feel like that, or at least most of it, more of it anyway. Yeah, well, the this article, uh, you know, I'm not going to read a bunch of it, but I just want to mention it because this is where the discussion in my class came from. W William Cronin, The Trouble with Wilderness or Getting Back to the Wrong Nature. Uh, he, he ends with this kind of conclusion, or, well, this is part of his conclusion, talking about how you need to, he, he, well, this is the, the comparison. He says, you're walking through the woods and you come upon a tree. And this tree is like not special in any way. You had no hand in creating this tree. It's just growing in the woods and you can enjoy this tree and be like, this tree is part of nature. Conversely, if you have a tree in your backyard, you see it as the tree in the backyard. Maybe it's got a swing on it or something. You don't see it as being part of nature. You see it as being the tree in my backyard, mm -hmm. even though even if you planted that tree and placed it and did all these things, you had no hand in it growing. Right. Like you may have aided it, but you didn't make the tree. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and he makes this point that we have to have this change in how we think about nature, where we see that tree in the backyard as just as much a part of nature as the tree out in the middle of the woods that you mm -hmm. come upon. Um, but it gets back to this idea you're talking about of seeing these these cities and these towns you live in, um, it, it making them the place that you want to be in. Right. Mm -hmm. Making it so you don't need the escape. And you don't see it as an escape. Um, and that can come in, you know, I, I'm not sure what that would look like. I think of things like, I believe it's in Singapore or maybe in Taiwan. I can't remember. It's bad that I'm confusing those two. But they've they've 
put massive effort into creating these kind of green spaces and they've created this giant urban garden um, where people can go and sort of stroll through. And, you know, that's still constructed nature, quote unquote, but, you know, it's, it's trying to make the city feel more like a part of the environment instead of this like separate thing, this like island of quote unquote civilization that you go to. And that's where you get your fast food and you have your job and you go to your hockey game or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's not nature, right? Instead making it feel like it's part of it. Yeah. That's sort of what, uh, what Gen C's, uh, dissertation is shaping up to be really examining. It's like this, this idea of like a, a pocket, of nature i think she calls it pseudo nature right this yeah. these spaces like like a park in a city or a golf course that are uh, they they're meant to look like nature and remind you of nature and be green like nature but are actually highly constructed spaces yeah. um and uh, she has some really good like comparisons and and sort of psychoanalytical thoughts about it but uh it sort of makes the argument that uh, like a park is almost like a housewife. It's like this, uh, it's like this. Uh, In the wilderness is the hoe. <laughs> right. Well, it's like this imitation of nature, you know, mm-hmm. the way a, a housewife is an imitation of like femininity, but it's still, it only exists to please the, the man you know it's to be uh uh, it's a it's a uh a construct of of the man it's it's built for the man the same way a golf course is you know look is green like the fucking forest but it's like where fucking business deals take place you know uh anyway getting off topic but uh constructed spaces not a not a in and of themselves bad idea, but I guess how, you know, how they are incorporated into a city's design, what message they send. Is this a sealed off place to uh, rejuvenate your mind on your lunch break before you go back to the job you hate uh, to, to uh, cleanse you of the, Sunday scaries, which is a term I've just become familiar with. Do you know this? Yeah. What I didn't know that was a thing until like two days ago. It's a very interesting thing. Uh, or is it integrated into the city to where it's it's an actually you know an actual uh, improvement of people's daily lives, the experience of nature? Yeah. I can't really even imagine like Central Park as being a a meaningful natural place, you know. Yeah, but it kind of makes me it, this whole housewife park thing uh, makes me think of this other aspect that that can kind of align the two of them, which is restricted access to them. <laughs> uh, if you think of golf courses, especially sometimes parks, if they're not completely public. Like sometimes like a, an apartment complex will have like a park that's only for residents and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff um, where you take that land and you close it off and you say, oh, this land is very beautiful and very green, but only certain people can use it. Yeah. Um, you have to have a membership and you have to pay and you have to maintain your dues and all that sort yeah, of stuff. Yeah, that's a good point. And most of the time you think of golf courses, you think of old white dudes out there kind of walking around. That's why 
uh, lava when we were driving past the golf course out to your house that one time. She's like, they could have made this into something useful, but instead you just have it for this old asshole. And he's like <laughs> pulling his golf clubs along. Yeah. He's like, just so he can be out here. Right. Um, but it just kind of made me, made me think of that. Yeah. But the, these documentaries, and, and we talked about the similar kind of thing that I'm going to mention way, way back, I think maybe in the first episode about uh we were talking about Naomi, Naomi Klein and uh yeah. this changes everything and about how the book can verge on being too sort of uh, focused on statistics and sort of giving you all the these facts and figures like you're saying like making it an issue of science and, and information as opposed mm-hmm. to a, a political issue um and how you know we, we're trying to figure out what is the best way to get these concepts across to people um, and I think we, we would agree that that you need some aspect of education, but especially with the first inconvenient truth, it's kind of going too far. And if you just lecture people, right? I mean, we have a negative connotation for that. If you're lecturing somebody, then you think about it as being a, a negative thing. Condescending. Yeah. yeah. And, and so, you know, if you're starting from that point of you don't know anything, let me educate you, mm-hmm. then I feel like eventually or inevitably that turns people off, right? So what is the right way, right? And, you know, like Amitov Ghosh talking about how we need to change the way we tell stories and all this sort of stuff. Um, you know, I, I don't know what the right answer is, but I don't think it's these movies. I, I definitely don't either. And I, the more I sort of wrestle with these issues and the more we talk about this, I have, I seem to come to a place where I think the best ways to actually uh, deal with climate change is to not really talk about it as like you don't have to talk about it as climate change because this is a uh, so politicized no matter how many times anyone says this is not a political issue it shouldn't be I agree but it is uh, and and what you're talking about is sort of getting into a more sort of fundamental root of the problem. So, so you can make the statistics and information available, but people, you know, those, that information does not exist in a vacuum and people are always fitting information into their pre-existing ideology. And so what has to change in that, in those pre-existing ideologies to make the uh, statistics meaningful? Uh, related to this, I had a thought watching the movie that uh, if you don't care about science or art, say, you know, Joe Schmo, I don't care about science or art, and you subscribe to the sort of American dream sort of hero system, this, this sort of narrative that is imposed upon us uh, to supposedly make our lives meaningful, uh, and, and that these hero systems, this narrative, does not incorporate in a meaningful way art or science, uh, you will not and cannot care about climate change. Like the mutability of the planet will seem impossible to you because you're accepting these systems to where the point uh, or or reality is the human drama. And so to think about, you know, the the environment, in quotes, uh, collapsing is like as strange as saying the the stage is crumbling underneath 
uh, a play performance, you know. Um, but but the real point of life is the is the drama of the play. Uh, so basically, what I'm saying is that if culture, if the especially in America, if if culture works for you, you can't care about what is outside of it, because culture working means you you experience culture as nature, as all that there is, and there's nothing outside of it, so, and we can't change you know, the, the natural conditions. So the only, to me, it seems like the only solution, and this is where I'm trying to bring it back to your point. The only solution is to build a culture that incorporates science and art to where like the, the means by which we see the world is informed by science and art. And, and I'm going to switch that and say art and science in that order. Um, because because if we don't do that, people people will continue to live the in quotes American dream, and the American dream has very little to do with art and science. You know what I'm saying? I mean, science way more. But I guess when I say science, I mean um, objective inquiry into the natural world, not R and D. You know, yeah. So it'd be like <clears throat> instead of STEM, it's like STEMA, science, technology, whatever the E is, whatever the M engineering, is. engineering, mathematics, arts, and humanities. Jitsi and I came up with one that was I didn't realize there was a thing called STEAM now because they're trying to incorporate uh, art. So it's science, technology, engineering, art, and math, which is just a perfect example of the military industrial technology complex swallowing the humanities literally like encapsulating it. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, we called it steamboat should be the acronym science, technology, engineering, art, math, bunch of asshole teacher shit. That's steamboats. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's, and that's part, you see this in, especially, you know, English programs in a lot of different places of, uh, it comes under the, the costume of writing across the curriculum. And what that really means is we want you to make English more profitable by tying it more into these other fields. And so, so it becoming kind of a subfield of everything else instead of its own standalone thing. So, uh, how can you teach, uh, you know, literature to biology majors in a way that it helps them earn empathy so if they go to med school they know not to be an asshole if somebody's diagnosed with cancer like that that sort of thing um yeah it's it's just kind of depressing uh but something that that you made me think of because you were talking about it, you said something that was kind of the way i was thinking about it which was nice where you said climate change to some people is like the stage collapsing under a plague right mm -hmm. it made me think of um, a movie we've talked about doing but never have schenectady new york oh yeah or synecdoche, synecdoche, synecdoche. Damn yeah. it, uh, New York. Uh, the uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman uh, film, Charlie Kaufman, uh, Charlie Kaufman, yeah. uh, which is kind of it, it becomes a play that becomes so meta that it becomes real life, which you know oversimplification, but yeah. the, that kind of idea. But thinking about climate change as a as an in, intrusive metafiction, like you have this this idea of what life is and what the world is and what your place on it and humanity's place on it. And then all of a sudden this thing comes in and says, oh, by the way, you live 
on a planet that that has these sort of other concerns, these physical concerns that are that are going to affect you and that you're going right. to have to factor into your life. Um, I mean, right now uh, we're kind of coming out of, I hope, this incredible heat wave at the beginning of October where yeah. we're like breaking every recorded record of recorded record, every record of, of you know, temperature. Um, you know, it's been 97 you know, almost every day in Alabama yeah. through September, which is just... It's been ridiculous. in the 90s here for sure. Mid, mid-90s. Yeah, which is just... Uh, I mean, if that's not intrusive, I don't know what is. That that was one part of these movies that uh, you kind of forget about. Sometimes people still say is like, they look at the weather, uh, and if it's cold, they say, well, you know, global warming's not real. But like Trump said that, like while he was in office, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Uh, classic, classic move. Yeah. And you, it seems like we're, most people, it seems like are getting past that where they're understanding the difference between weather and climate, but that weather is impacted by climate and it makes it more severe, not necessarily just hotter. It'll be higher um, a much more extreme range of weather. Yeah, and and that's important because you know I was talking about it being hot, and I'm I'm not talking about like a freak heat wave. I'm saying like this is a trend. Like every yeah. year, it's hot in October. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my wife and I got married at the beginning of November a couple years ago, and it, it, we were surprised that it was cold that day because it had been very warm going into it. Yeah. Um. So it's just these trends that people are going to be noticing. Um, and you know, like I said, I probably mentioned this before I was talking to my dad, who's not the most uh, plugged in person in the world. And he's, he's just saying like, Oh, you know, it's just the sun's not like it was when I was a kid. Like you go outside, it's just hotter. Like you can't be out there very long. He's like, when I was a kid, it was different. Now it's just, I don't know what happened, but (laughs) I was like, yeah, there you go. Jesus. And for, I think the, the solution, you know, if the way to get these things across to people and have it hit home. It's not what Al Gore is doing. I think what is going to turn a lot of people is just a lived experience of something and being like, oh my God, okay, yeah, now I get it. Like the lady on NPR talking about her house getting destroyed. She's like, okay, I understand now. Like this makes sense. And and hopefully it doesn't have to be a firsthand experience. You know, hopefully it can be a, just maybe one person you know and care about, you know, has to experience <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah, um, non-fatal, hopefully. Yeah, yeah, to where you can feel the impact without having to suffer through it. Uh, but yeah, I think you're right. And that goes back to something we did talk about on the very first episode is Ghosh, Amitav Ghosh's moments of recognition. The cy- in the cyclone, when he writes about living through this this cyclone in, in, uh, oh, shit. <laughs> in Calcutta, right? I think so. Um and, and sort of that was his moment of, you know, this is something that should not really be happening or at least should not be happening to this extent. Um, so, it, it, you know, it takes those moments of recognition to sort of make you wake up and be like, oh, you know, and we see those. I mean, to, to keep going back through old episodes, that was a big thing we talked about in First Reformed was was Toller kind of seeing the light. And in his case, it wasn't um, it was sort of a secondhand firsthand account i guess where he he's sort of learning through michael and then the event that kind of really shakes him uh in that film uh, well one of many is michael committing suicide and him being like okay well 
if this is something he was willing to take his life over, then clearly it's it's powerful and it's something that people should try to understand. Right. And Michael's, you know, in their conversation is pointing Toller's attention to these climate martyrs, other people mm-hmm. who have been willing to. And obviously Michael's not a martyr, but he did die because of because of a despair related to, you know, environmental catastrophe. Um but yeah, you're right. That is a, a moment of recognition where Toller has to take it more seriously. And what's great about that movie too is that he, Toller, is not like against climate change. It's not like a complete 180 where he's like, I don't believe and now I do. It's like he has the sort of, uh, we talked about the middle mind, you know, it's like he listens to NPR and he, you know, he knows uh, this is real, but there's a di- huge difference between like theoretically acknowledging intellectually acknowledging and then truly understanding like what's at stake. Um, yeah. And, and, and I kind of believe Al Gore in, in a lot of ways that, that he, I believe he's sincere. Like what, I mean, why else would he do this? There's plenty of ways he could make money, you know? Yeah. Um, I just don't think it's the best way. I don't think it's the best thing he could have done. Yeah, kind of makes you, you know, to to really, I don't know, he could do a lot of work flexing his influence or whatever kind of what I assume is waning influence that he has and not put it on film, Mm -hmm. you know, so it kind of makes me wonder why is it so important for that stuff to be included? Why, why not just because there were parts where I thought he was kind of on the right path, sort of like he goes. I think it's in Miami. I can't remember where he is, where he's going around with like the city officials and they're looking like wading through the water. Yeah. Yeah, And they're talking about how they're, they're raising the the road in preparation for one level of, of sea rise or one foot of sea rise. Um, But they know that it's like not going to be enough and eventually that'll get sort of overcome. And so they're they're talking about it as if they're putting band-aids on these, these major problems. Um, And all that stuff is really great. And if he would just be, if it would have been like Al Gore going around the country or even the world and sort of looking at these where this is happening and sort of explaining it, that's that's one thing. But then he has to include all this stuff about the Paris the Paris Agreement yeah. and, and and this whole like personal like biography stuff. Yeah, which is like doesn't matter at all. Like yeah. I don't sorry, I just don't give a shit about your life, Al Gore. Like well, you're, and, you're doing fine. And if I do, I'll watch a, a documentary or read a book about your life. Yeah. But I, this is a, this is a climate change thing. Yeah. And so that's where both of these sort of fall flat a little bit. The second one, I think maybe a little more so than the first one. Um, because yeah, I mean, like we've been talking about, it's, it's conflicting because there's a lot of good stuff in here in both of these. Um, and by good stuff, I mean like stuff that like he does, explain these concepts with some level of clarity and he does have these moments that are kind of striking and like the ending speech and all that sort of stuff Mm -hmm. but then he has other things that you're just like this does not either doesn't matter or it's approaching it in a way that is completely unrelatable for most people Um, and condescending yeah i mean he ends the second film with a wallace stevens quote like after the last no there's a yes thing it's like maybe not the best thing to go out on Especially when right after that we have the the cards where it says the Paris Agreement happened or whatever, and then like the third one is in 2017, uh, President Donald Trump 
uh, withdrew the United States from the agreement. So there's another no. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then after that, it's like, but we keep fighting on. We've educated. And it's like, okay, yeah, you, that was the important card. That right. was the one that mattered. Right. Yeah. Uh, back to his sort of megalomania. There's all this rhetoric in the in the film about democracy and inform the people sort of thing. He says one thing. I can't remember which movie it's in, but he says, uh, basically, leaders say, uh, oh, if it's uh, if it's not on the tips of the tongues of my constituents, I'm not going to worry about it. Uh, I'll, I'll fix it later. But it's like that's how it should be. Like leaders are representatives of their constituents, so that's at odds with that whole democratic rhetoric, where he's saying, "Oh, the people inform this," and he he it's in the second one. He meets uh, Justin Trudeau at some place and Trudeau says uh, uh, Gore congratulates him on his policies or whatever. And he says, it's not me, it's Canadians, which is in a democracy is how it should be. The leader should not like take credit for making any changes. Right. And not to fully endorse uh, Justin Trudeau here, obviously with his uh, just weird insistence on blackface. uh, Well, plus his in the 21st century, you know, plus not, um, following through on these policies and actually, you know, things like Alberta Sands pipelines happening sure, sure. and uh, just a whole you know list of things that he's done that, that puts him very much in line. Like he, he sort of is the Canadian Obama now because he's <laughs> all these things have happened kind of under his watch. But all that to say that moment where at least Trudeau can acknowledge his role in a democracy is to reflect the will of the people. Mm-hmm. And even though, Gore may pay lip service to that. There's all these other things like that statement about how he feels like it's his fault that all these things have gone wrong. Um, since, you know, in the last 10 years, it's like, what? No one, no one is looking to you to like change the world. Right. If you have good information about climate change, which I, I, I believe he does. And I believe he cares about it. And I believe he stays on top of the research. Uh, that's great, and you should you should do something meaningful, uh, but you should not make these weird personal narrative documentaries that paint you as some sort of hero, because shit's gotten worse, like you say. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just you know, right message, in parts wrong messenger in a lot of ways. Yeah. And that's where you get the whole man bear pig. South Park thing. But that, you know, that's a really good example of what we're saying about the discrepancy between messenger and message because the, especially in the uh, earlier, in the first Man Bear Pig iteration, it's equally about, it, it seems like it's maybe even more about making fun of Al Gore than about climate change. They are skeptical, you know, which fuck them it's way too late at that point even to be skeptical um at least at least in the way they were um but then you see them later in the newer man bear pig sort of recanting like okay this is real at no point are they like hey al gore is a compelling and heroic figure now it's just like what he's talking about is legitimate yeah you know (laughs) <laughs> but they, yeah, that's a, they do sort of 
It's kind of a backhanded concession of like, okay, yeah, you have a point, but you're still an asshole. Right. That kind of thing. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? You're not wrong. You're just an asshole. <laughs> and, and it's like great. Um, I don't know. I think man, bear, pig bringing that up is important because it, even though it's ridiculous, it is kind of a, a touchstone, like a cultural touchstone when it comes to this whole debate mm-hmm. conversation around climate change. Because if you ask the average person what they know about like the cap and trade bill, they'll be like, I don't know what that means. What's it for? I assume it's about trade. Maybe it has to do with China. Um, but if you say, okay, what do you think of when I say man, bear, pig? They're like, oh yeah, Al Gore, he's an asshole. And <laughs> so it's it, it's unfortunate that it works that way and that Matt Parker and Trey Stone have... Trey, that, Trey, Trey Parker, Parker and Matt, Matt Stone. Stone. Damn it. <laughs> that Trey Parker and Matt Stone have that, that sort of... Uh, um, influence, but you know, that's kind of always how it's been and that's how it's going to continue to be. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's, uh, why when we, you know, we don't have to end yet, but just this makes me think of it next week. We're going to be talking about these two documentaries that were produced and, and narrated by, by Leonardo DiCaprio. Um, so is he a better mouthpiece than Al Gore? Yeah. Well, you know, maybe, but he's still not great far from perfect i don't know if there there probably isn't a perfect mouthpiece but you know it's not leo dicaprio and his lust for young supermodels i don't know i don't know who it's almost like you know the question we brought up a hundred times of can a movie um not like unhypocritically critique a culture um defined by its technology movies as an inherently technological medium uh, to where you know finding a the right spokesperson is just you know rearranging the deck chairs on the titanic it's like it's all going down because we'd have we would have to get the para the the more fundamental paradigm would have to be challenged before that that would even make a difference or if it were changed you, we wouldn't even be having this conversation about like which celebrity would be the mouthpiece. It's like <laughs> yeah. celebrities would be a very different thing in a, in a world where climate change were not happening. Yeah. It's like, Oh, if we could only get Sir Mix a lot to, <laughs> to make a comeback and do a song about right. sea level rise, we'd all be good. But I mean, the, just the existence of celebrity speaks to the wild wealth disparity in American culture and, and, most other a lot of other cultures certainly first world cultures uh, to where to have a a millionaire telling you about the sacrifices you're going to have to make yeah and then they get on their private jet and go off to right turks and caicos that's another moment in uh uh an inconvenient truth where al gore is having this very sad moment where people just i didn't see any changes i see no changes uh, and he's, it's a voiceover narration as he's wandering through an airport about to get on another flight across the world. It's like, yeah. really? At least, uh, Naomi Klein and, and, uh, this changes everything, you know, has the, the courage to, um, start the book with a questioning of the environmental morality of air travel. And of course the green new deal has, has had that courage as well. And that's another thing. It's like, I think about that a lot. Weirdly, um, is, is the effect that a kind of 
in a perfect world or a more perfect world, I guess, um, to start off with that famous American grammatical error, a, a more perfect world, what that would look like and how it would necessarily have to include a reduction in, in travel, specifically air travel, but also car travel, mm-hmm. just travel in general. And people would be forced to become by uh, you know necessity more local, mm-hmm. more localized. Um, and how that more than a lot of other things would just drive people insane to not be able to, to trap. We think like humans valorize travel so much that it's, it's like, I, I don't understand it personally, but um, it's, but it's relative. And that's what, if something like that were to happen, the relativity of that would present itself very quickly. So if all you have is a bicycle, the next, you know, the next state might as well be fucking Fiji. Yeah. You know what I'm as saying? As it used to be, right? It was right. that statistic like most people would die within like eight miles of where they were born or something yeah. like that. If not, you know, a smaller space than that. And it's just sort of, it's interesting to think about it. Like there are people whose whole jobs is they fly around the world and take like Instagram selfies. And that's what they do. <laughs> it's it's just fascinating to think about that sort of, that that corner of humanity that it's sort of large of thinking about like, oh, you know, oh, have you not been to, to Nepal or, you know, I, I just got back from uh, Moscow or whatever. Like it's a, it's it's a social marker. Yeah. Yeah. What it is. And yeah. how, you know, I think in this this world after some sort of major mobilization, Green New Deal type thing, um, I think it would probably happen that that would become more so of a marker of like, oh, you can afford to pay the massive carbon tax on your plane ticket mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and like, I don't know this it's so, so much happens uh, electronically now that it, a lot of face to face meeting and travel is obsolete. Anyway, there was a, yeah. a great conference and I can't remember what it was called, but it was uh, going to be held, I believe in shit. It was in Germany. I want to say uh, Germany somewhere in, in Europe. Um, and it was a, a uh, like electronic internet conference. And so the idea was you sign up and um, they were doing it like pre-recorded. You like pre-record you giving your presentation or whatever, and then you upload it and then people can look at the different sessions and you can sort of like chat with them and that sort of stuff. You could even do it live through things like Skype, but you know, time differences might make it weird. But the idea was like, this is all the same information you would get if we had all flown to this place and met up at a hotel and like had this conference except it's mostly carbon neutral because there's very little, you know, there's almost no travel happening. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, like, however your country produces electricity would factor into how carbon neutral it can be and all that sort of stuff. But that's not sexy. That's not, Oh, I'm going to jet off to, to Berlin and go to this big international conference. It doesn't have the same kind of. Oomph. And you, you wonder like, where does that, uh, connotation of sexiness come from why is this sexy probably from images you've been fed since the day you were born yeah of uh you know to oh have you been to paris kind of like francis ha yeah <laughs> she flies off to paris just to say that she did it <laughs> yeah she's there for like two days and, and just sleeps half the time. <laughs> yeah it's and you know that's that's kind of where we're at in, in a lot of ways but it's also i think you could link that to a lot of the things we said about ad astra and that sort of aloofness and disengagement, there is this uh, desire to be freed from the constraints of nature uh, that I think are represented by 
uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character as you know disengaged from the earth and then Brad Pitt's character Roy is sort of following in his footsteps and I think air travel is a kind of very real sort of uh, you know not microcosm but a the thing that maybe that's based on in a way is this uh, freedom to move about the country and the world uh, as as a symbol of dominion of being literally above it all uh, being able to traverse the world at inhuman speeds not being subject to the laws of nature uh, or the former laws of nature wasn't that like the travelocity slogan for a while you are now free to move about the country or some or, i think business? it was southwest southwest yeah um yeah it's sort of before Louis C.K. Uh, got canceled for being a, a shithead, um, he had that great bit about being on an airplane and they had Wi-Fi. It was like the first time an airplane had, had Wi-Fi or whatever. And halfway through the flight, something happens and it goes wrong. And the stewardess is like, or stewardess, flight attendant is like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, uh, we're, we're sorry to announce that the, the Wi-Fi is no longer working. So we apologize for any inconvenience. And the guy next to him goes, this is bullshit. <laughs> And he's like, this is literally the first time you knew this thing existed. And now that you're deprived of it, it's somehow some travesty. Yeah, um, we can we can get used to uh, luxuries and naturalize them pretty quick, it sounds like. Yeah, and, and the whole thing about like, oh, I'm sorry, did you not fly through the air magically? Did you not take a trip in, you know, six hours? It used to take, you know, six months. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, we don't. And I don't know. It's not very productive either to tell people you need to be grateful for what you have, that kind of thing. Um, kind of no right answers. Yeah. <clears throat> um, trying to think of, a, and I don't, I don't know. We were talking about movies as, um, you know, these technological products and these they can be you know markers of a culture and all that kind of stuff. And it made me think about something we've been talking a lot about, especially last night. And I forget what the term for it is. I always called it motion smoothing. Well, uh, like pan and scan. Pan and scan. Yeah, yeah. Like whatever it is that makes movies look shitty now because they look like you're looking out a window at some shitty set. Um, I, I don't know. I feel like there's something in that about sort of technological technology going too far. We're sort of becoming too it's so, obsessed with advancement. It's so good, it's bad. Yeah, yeah. Of like, oh, is this is this what you really want? Is this kind of what you are clamoring for? That to look at, there will be blood, which is what we were watching last night, and be like, oh, this looks really bad now. Yeah. When when contrast that with uh, Corey, who was staying at Jensi's uh, the night before his wedding, uh, and he was all excited because she let him uh, watch on her TV VCR combo, uh, Dracula 2000. Yeah. Which on, apparently on the VHS. Really and he, he kept talking about how beautiful it was. And, and I've <laughs> said the same thing. This, uh, we watched uh, rookie of the year, fantastic film. Um, and the colors are just like com- totally like, it's like a level of saturation. I forgot about it's watch yeah. rookie of the year. <laughs> On VHS, <laughs> on an old TV. Go out and find all of the equipment you need for that. And and see what I'm talking about. Uh, and, and then compare that to one of the most beautifully shot contemporary films of all time. Uh, I mean, contemporary films, but maybe of all time. There Will Be Blood. 
on pan and scan and tell me rookie of the year is not the more aesthetically pleasing film. It yeah. is. It's just, and it's just strange that the big technological advance with TVs was something that makes movies and television look less like movies and television. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I don't, I, I would, I've never met anyone that enjoys it is the weird thing. It's sort of like the lock-in thing um, of it. That's the, the, the peak of technology now. And now we all just kind of accept it. And there are plenty of people that probably have it on their TV and don't know how to turn it off. So they just watch it like that. Yeah. So if you're wondering what the fuck we're talking about, just go to your settings on your TV and uh, look for something. It it seems like pan and scan is in a way a sort of derogatory way people refer to it. I think <laughs> it'll either say pan and scan or like auto motion yeah. or something like that. You need to turn that off. Yeah. And then it'll look like TV again. Yeah. And not like you're watching a bad community theater play. And it's, it's especially egregious in films because it fucks with the cinematography and, and the image that the artists uh, intend for you to see are not the images you see. It's in a lot of ways, it's similar to the, um, uh, you know, used to see those messages on the beginning of a film. It's like this film has been edited or modified to fit your screen. Mm hmm. So it goes from a 16 by nine that you saw in the theater to a four by three on your, on the old TVs. And I remember hearing several directors talk about how there are some movies where you can't see things you need to see in order to understand the film because it's just cropped out, um, by that. So, um, if you, if you are, if you do care about the object, you know, the, the film and the, artist's intention you, you, unfortunately i mean i know it sounds like kind of a geeky thing like you you kind of need to in some ways care about that but also think about the like your original point think about the sort of cultural implications can we outdo ourselves with technology like can we yeah. advance so much that it's worse yeah and and this is kind of an old man gripe but i'm going to say it anyway I, I, I explain this to people all the time i never said I was in favor of having a chip on my card, right? Like we all have those now and they break. Like I had a card that like the bank sent me and they're like, this is your new chip card. And it stopped working like three days later. And then you had to do the whole dance of like, put it in three times and okay, now you can swipe in some places. You just can't use it at all. Um, It's just, you know, that's a completely different sort of example, but it's showing like the, you being told directly or indirectly, this is better technology. It's stronger. It's safer. We use this now. And you being like, oh, okay, I'll take it and go. And you have no say in it. That's just sort of right. how the world functions now. Yeah, the the things that impact us directly like that, there's no vote on that sort of thing. No. Where is that? Yeah, I think I've actually brought that example up on, on here before, mm-hmm. uh, but not the pan and scan thing. But I think that's it's important because it relates to movies and we talk about movies here, but it also, like we we're saying, relates to technological advancements and like, yeah. When does it get to a point where it's like, okay, we've reached saturation or lack of saturation, I guess. Yeah. And so this is this is kind of as far as we not want to go or can go, but this is as far as we need to go. Right. We only need this. We don't need to really go any farther. Nice. Maybe if something else comes along, we can do that. Yeah. If we're watching Avatar or something, we can turn it on. But All right. You're, uh, eventually your TV is just going to come with like a flashlight with it. And they're like... We're out of advancements. Here's a hand job. <laughs> um, we can't make it look any better, but uh, 
You can fuck it. <laughs> Sells by the millions. Black Friday crowds just out into the streets. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, that's this coming. one's a, this one's a that's th- coming uh, if it's not already here. This one's a 3D TV. <laughs> it's got three. <laughs> oh God. Um, so yeah, that this is all completely related to an inconvenient truth. Yeah. Um, but dick, yeah, the Dick TV is another inconvenient truth. Dick TV. <laughs> um, oh, there was a thing that was going around Twitter that Kurt Russell's stunt double in Escape from New York, his name, I think it was Escape from New York, his his name in real life was Dick Warlock. <laughs> so that that was pretty. That was my cool name of the week that I saw. Uh, that's wonderful. Um, but yeah, we were just doing the, these, this pair of movies, Inconvenient Truth, Inconvenient uh, Sequel, Truth to Power, because like we're saying at the beginning, they kind of were the first documentaries or films of like major release films. Uh, of 21st century climate conversation. Yeah, for sure. and it kind of uh, kicked it all off for a lot of people and sort of brought it at least, because I remember Inconvenient Truth having a lot of like commercials on TV and like people talking about it and all that sort of stuff. Al Gore was still kind of in the public eye a little right. bit. And it's almost like the political controversy of it is what got it its audience, whoever yeah. that is. Yeah. So the, it's a thing that, that happens when uh, these things become, and people always say, well, well, it's just political. Well, yeah, it is political, but not in the way you mean, because you're an idiot. But the, this idea that that conversation about, is it true? Is it not completely sort of covers over the, the point of the film, which is to say like, Hey, look at this. Isn't this troubling? Don't you, we need to think about this and talk about this and try to figure out ways to, to deal with it. Instead. It's like, uh, were you just saying that? Cause you hate Republicans or mm-hmm. you hate freedom. That's right. Um, just, uh, just ridiculous. I've been thinking a lot and sort of ranting a lot in the car about the idea of freedom and uh and lava talking about her dad back in syria and how he's like he gets a pension from the government he's retired from being a teacher so he just gets a pension he never had to set up a plan or like you know am i gonna go with the 401k it's just it was part of the government plan they took money out of his check and now he gets a pension right and she said why can't we just do that here why do i have to set up this big retirement plan and like maybe i'll lose it and it doesn't transfer from state to state and i said well it's freedom <laughs> what your dad got that's not freedom like yeah he has a pension and he's provided for in his old age but he's not free he's not really free in the way that we're free yeah because the definition changes in america to whatever we do whatever we do is representative of freedom yeah exactly and and we we automatically think that choice equals freedom even if all the choices are dog shit at yeah. least you're free and you can make that choice coke Coke or Pepsi or Wild Cherry Pepsi or Dr. Pepper. It's all bullshit, though, you know. Yeah, and and that's what it's going to keep coming up um, with the election coming up, mainly with like the health care debate of uh, a lot of candidates. Um, Joe Biden being one of the biggest ones saying, well, we want to make sure that citizens have the right to choose. And what they mean is they want to give you the right to choose between a bad option and a worse option and an option that's worse than that. Um, that they don't want you to, to have, uh, nice things. <laughs> that's my, that's my hard hitting political analysis. They don't want you to have nice things. Yeah. And, and an abundance of choices often 
serves to obscure the shittiness of the choices and the sort of fundamental other options. You know, if, if you're choosing between chicken McNuggets and a Big Mac or whatever, you're not in a position to even assess the health of that choice. You know what I'm saying? You're just thinking about the particular differences between these two shitty things. Uh, So in a lot of ways, the more options you have, the less inclined you are to think about how shitty they are. Yeah. And, and this, and also an abundance of choices is just in a very simple way, most of the time bad for the planet. You know, we don't need a million different kinds of deodorant or whatever, right? With all their plastic packaging. There's a guy, I can't remember his name, some right-wing douchebag on Twitter went to Cuba and took a bunch of pictures in a Cuban supermarket and was like, this is socialism. This is what they want. And the thing was he was standing in front of a wall of canned tomatoes and they were all the same brand because, you know, government control of the store and all that. That sounds awful. Yeah. And everybody's like, how many different kinds of canned tomatoes do you fucking need? And most egregious is he was standing in front of a wall of flat screen TVs and they're all the same TV. God forbid. Dude. You shudder to think. Um, Thank God. And I bet they all have fucking pan and scan turned on. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's just anyway we, we've we've gone long enough. I think <laughs> talking about all this. Yep. Uh, next week we're going to continue this this October experiment, and we're going to be talking about another pair of movies, Eleventh Hour from two thousand seven. So right hot off the hills of an inconvenient truth, and then Ice on Fire from twenty nineteen, which was produced. Uh, through HBO and like I said Leonardo DiCaprio is included in both oh, these as a producer narrator alternately titled water <laughs> yeah uh, so we'll be talking about those especially I'm excited to, to see ice and fire because it's talking about or apparently the focus of it is technological advancements that are going to reverse climate change and carbon sequestration and and all this stuff, all the how the technocrats, Elon Musk is going to save the world as he hops on his rocket and goes to Mars or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what we're going to be doing next week. Um, so check us out. We're available on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Anthropod Tweets. We're actually tweeting now. Ooh. I'm tweeting now, sharing things, cool things. Um, and that's it, I reckon. That's all I got. All right. <laughs> I don't believe this bullshit to provoke you a little bit more. I always think this. <laughs> <laughs>